And the title of my message is Calm Down. Calm Down. Anybody ever yell that before? Calm Down! I mean, you know what? Let me rephrase that. Anybody ever spent a prolonged period of time with children before? Same question, right? Is eventually you find your buttons getting pushed and you're going to yell. And you don't say it. You yell, calm down, right? Which ironically is demonstrating to the children you want them to do something you are personally incapable of doing <laughs> at the moment that you are yelling it to them, which they are cognizant of at that moment, right? Like, that, that's real. But, like, that, that happens to us, right? We, you know, sometimes you get so worked up and everything just feels so chaotic and out of control and you can't like think straight and you're overwhelmed and you just want it to stop and then a stuffed animal grazes your left ear as you're trying to drive on the freeway and you just, you've had too much. You're just like, calm down, everybody. It just kind of slips out of you. Um, a little while back, um, my wife and I, uh, we wanted to take a family trip and we thought like, what would be a fun, like cool thing for us to do with our kids? And we live in California, so we're like, let's drive up to Northern California. It's so beautiful up there. We've never been. It's, we haven't done a road trip with our kids. That'd be awesome. And I have I've three kids. Um, I actually brought a picture so you know I'm not making it up. Uh, these are, this is, it actually kind of looks like I did cut the head out of myself and put it on a picture that was in a JCPenney catalog. But this is real. This is my real family. Uh, this is my wife, Gretchen, and then our three kids who are super stoked to have picture day. Um, this is the best one, you guys. This is the best one that we could get, right? And this is their real personalities just shining through. So we're like, let's go on this road trip. They're, all our kids are, are uh, nine and under. And so um, one of the things that I, I realized, and I, this happens to me a lot, about 30 minutes into the road trip is like, this was a mistake. This was not a good, why did we do this? I hate my life. Drop me off. I will hitchhike back. You can have all of the money, dear. Like, I don't need, I just can't, this is crazy, right? And it's not that I don't love my children. It's just that sometimes I forget that I do when they're being crazy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Don't judge me. You know you've been there. Like, it just, it's too much. It gets to be too much, right? And I, I just, I don't, I don't like being in situations where I feel like, like I am trapped in an environment in which everything is inescapably out of control, right? And that is the case in a minivan with a bunch of like children, right? For hours and hours on it. We spent over 20 hours together in the minivan, okay? And for those of you that like are not at that stage of life with kids, for those of you that are like maybe newlyweds and are like, we should have kids, let me just help you, okay? So just flash forward to the loving experience that you will get to experience. We, uh, we're probably, at one point, we're like three hours in, there's this fight that breaks out in the back seat over a Cheetos bag, and they're pulling it back and forth, and they want it, and they want it, and then it busts open, and all the Cheetos go up in the air, and it's just like raining that Cheeto powder, you know? I'm like, there goes the resale value on this stupid vehicle that I didn't even want. And it's just like, it's gross everywhere, and one kid's just eating it off the floor, and I'm like, uh he's going to, he's going to get some weird disease. Like, I don't, 
that's not good. And, and like, it's, you know, the, there's all this bickering over whose turn it is to use the iPad, right? And they're fighting over that. And then like, can I play your phone? Can I play your phone? Can I play? And I'm like, it's the GPS right now. Like if we give you the phone, like we don't know where we're going or what we're doing. Like we can't do that. And then, then, you know, my wife had this plan to get all these library books. And so we have those and one kid wants to read the book. Of course, they all want to read the one same book, even though there's like 85 books in the car and they're fighting over who gets the one book. And so then the kid's like, finally, like, okay. And he frisbees it to his brother in the back seat, hits him right above the eye. He starts bleeding. Then he's crying. Then he's freaking out, flailing about. Now there's like, I got to go in to talk to a librarian about explain why there's blood on the binding of this book of like, you know, Dylan, the dinosaur goes to the dentist, you know what I mean? And like, sorry, I'll pay for it. I, I don't, you know, and like try and convince him I'm not like abusing my children with books, you know what I mean? And it just, it, it, the whole car is just, it's, it's just pure insanity the whole time. And so like, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this book to my wife. She's driving because she gets all car sick. And, um, and so I'm reading this to her and it, like another fight breaks out in the backseat and I'm just like, I've had it. And so I, I spin around in my chair and with that, like that dad intimidation that you can just turn on, you know what I'm talking about? I spin around. This is where it's nice to be large and bearded. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I stood around in the chair and I'm like, calm down! And instantly all the kids are like, huh, huh. Except the one kid is like still like eating the Cheeto dust, you know? And they're looking at me. And then one of my kids like feels like he needs to explain. And he's just like, well, but he was uh, whatever. And like, no joking, I cut him off. I'm just like, like, which not appropriate. Okay, we can admit. I'm not trying to tell you what like you should do this. I'm just saying. I'm reporting the facts of a horrible thing that happened in my car, right? And my wife has given me this look like, that, that's, your be- that's what you got, right? That's the best parenting thing you can come up with in this moment is meh, meh, meh. And I'm just like, I, I'm done. Like, I, can't, I need to, like, I need to, like, tap out, okay? Like, I need a little, I need to time out, okay, right now. And so she does, she like, she pulls over, we're in this like, we pull over in this small town and there's like a used bookstore and I just, I just get out and I just go in the bookstore, you know, and I'm just wandering around in this bookstore and I'm like, God, help me, remind me that I love these kids. Like, you know, like deep down, it's very deep down right now. It feels like I don't even know if I can get that deep to find the love because I'm so flustered and frustrated right now. And, And then I find, I get calmed down after about 15 minutes and I go back out to the car, and, um, and I get in, and my, my youngest, Zeke, is like, Dad, um, it's like super condescendingly, by the way. He's like, Dad, are, are you okay now? And I was like, I thought I was, but not anymore! Back to the bookstore! Milling around in there, like, for another 45 minutes. Just like, it's just, and this is why I bring this up. I feel like we all have the, even if you don't have kids, you have these moments where you're just like, I just need everything to calm down, right? I just need, like, I just need some, some peace in this moment. You just feel like there's so much coming at you. There's so much to do, so much going on, so much responsibility, so many obligations, so many things on the schedule, so many bills to pay, so many, um, you know, expectations and appointments to track. And you're going in a million different directions all at the same time. And, you know, you, 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 you're afraid you're going to forget something. And then you're convinced that you're definitely forgetting something, but you don't know what the thing is. And, like, you panic. And you're trying to focus, but it's hard because, you know, your mind is racing and your heart is beating really fast. And, like, you're trying to get on top of it because everything just feels out of control. Right? 
You know what I'm talking about? How many of you just hearing that explanation, you're like, okay, I'm like, I'm getting to the thing that you're talking about, right? Just the explanation is enough. Like I come, I ditch my kids and come in here to resist that feeling. And then you're giving it back to me right now. Like I don't need that in my life. And there's a word for that, right? It's called anxiety, anxiety. And I want to give us a collective definition of it so that as we're talking about it, moving forward, we're all thinking of the same thing. Anxiety is a panicked awareness that you are not in control. Anxiety is a panicked awareness that you are not in control. That even though you can control your performance, you cannot control who they lay off at your company. Um, that although you can control like your ability to love and forgive and try and give somebody grace and mercy, you can't control their reaction to what you do. You can't control their response. Like that is out of your hands and that produces anxiety. Like you can't control what happens to the market, right? Like you can try and invest wisely, but you can't control like when this crashes or, or if this is a good time or not to sell your house. Like you can't, there are so many things that you can't control. And anxiety is produced when we begin to panic in that awareness that like I am not in control. And I think a lot of us don't know how to escape it. Like, it's kind of, it's become our state of being inside of our culture, this feeling like we're frazzled, unsettled, we're worried all the time, and we don't even know how to enjoy our lives because we're just like, well, what about that? And what if this happens? And then what are we going to do? Like, there's a psychologist named uh, Dr. Harriet Lerner who says that we don't all respond to anxiety in the same way, but most of us do so unhealthily right? Um, and most of us actually deal with our anxiety um, by doing two different things that are kind of the opposites of one another um, as a way of coping. And, it, and they're really unhealthy things. The, the first is something called over-functioning. And uh, over-functioners, they tend to like move quickly. They, they advise, they rescue, they try and take over things. They're, you know, they micromanage, they get in people's business because they don't want to like kind of look inward and deal with their own stuff. Um, under-functioning is the other thing. And underfunctioning is like, it's, it's people that like the, le the more they're under stress, the less they have an ability to perform well, right? And so, you know, they invite other people to come take over and they, they shirk responsibility and, and often become people that everyone's like, oh, you can't trust them. Like they drop the ball. Like when things get stressed, they're going to like, oh, it's just going to be, it's going to be too difficult for them to handle. Here, here's the way I would summarize, like summarize these in, in my own words. Overfunctioning is attempting to take control over that which is not yours to control. Overfunctioning is attempting to take control over that which is not yours to control, like someone else's job description, right? Like, um, like your spouse's level of fitness. That one got weird, right? Don't, don't look at them. Don't make eye contact. Don't nudge them. Just be like, wow, this is a really powerful message. And just like write it and then just let the Holy Spirit just do whatever. You know what I mean? That's not you, right? But like that's over-functioning, right? It's where we try and come in and we're just like, if you're not going to do the thing that I think you're supposed to do, well, then let me just get involved and kind of start to do it for you, right? Um, under-functioning, I think the, the kind of the, the easiest way to understand this is under-functioning is refusing to take control over those things that you can control 
because of a preoccupation with the things that you can't, right? This is when we get, we, we freeze up under anxiety because in our minds we're just like, well, what's going to happen with that? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, like layoffs are coming and in two weeks this thing's going to happen and it's all I can think about and it's all I can obsess over. And like we get caught up in like the future that we don't know how to live in the now. And so we, we, we don't have this ability to take control of the things that we can control now because we're too busy being distracted by the unknowns we can't control later. And it becomes this paralyzing thing. And, and we, uh, most of us, like we have no idea how to actually deal uh, with our anxiety. This, we have this sense that the world should work in a certain way and that we should have a certain amount of control. And when we don't, we don't know what to do about that. And unless you had calm modeled for you, by very emotionally healthy parents, which some of us are like, I've never heard that phrase before, emotionally healthy parents. That's hilarious. I'm going to tell that. I'm not going to tell my dad because he'll get mad, but I will tell my brothers and sisters, and they will think that's hilarious. Right? If you didn't grow up in an environment where that was modeled or where you were given tools and opportunities to practice that, like most of us, we have no idea what to do. And so our default response is to either overfunction or underfunction, or sometimes a combination of both because we feel out of control. And so this is what I want to talk about today. How do we cultivate calm? How do we do that? And what are the risks if we don't? Like this, this anxiety that's kind of always pressing down on us, like what are the risks if we don't address that? Like, you know, it, it, well, some of us are just like, yeah, I'm just kind of a high strung person. Like, is, are there hidden effects of that that maybe you're not really cognizant of right now that are impacting and affecting your life now and both in the future? Um, and I want to do so by looking at this, this passage, this story uh, from the life of Jesus. It's Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 6. We're going to read um, 6 through 16 here. And this is what happens. It says that Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy, which is great that they mentioned that, right? You, that guy's got to be like, why, why are you bringing that up? Like, like, that was a long time ago. I've worked so hard to, like, get rid of that stigma. It's like being like, this is my friend Frank. He used to be super fat and also, like, used heroin. They're like, what? Why are you throwing that out there? Like, blind date. Like, what is happening right now? You save that for later. Like, I'm trying to, what, seriously? And people are like, that's an important detail we're going to want to put in the Bible for all of history. <laughs> Just point out, like, your worst dysfunction that made everyone feel like you, like they couldn't be around you. So, good job. All right, so, <laughs> verse 7 says this. While Jesus was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head which is weird. Some of you are like, is that like a normal bible That would be weird in the middle of any dinner anywhere. It says, the disciples were indignant when they saw this. Now, indignance is a specific kind of anger, right? It's anger that actually stems from anxiety. The anxiety of, I have an idea in my head about how things are supposed to go, how things are supposed to work, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what would be good, what would be bad. And you are doing something outside of the box of what I have deemed acceptable. And that makes me angry. There's an air of condescension to the anger. My youngest son knows this kind of anger, right? As he condescendingly asks me if I'm doing okay and sends me back into the bookstore. That's what's happening. They were indignant when they saw this. What? A waste, they said. 
It, it could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And I'll be honest, like at, when I read through this at first glance, I, I kind of with the disciples. I mean, it makes it, this is a logical argument they're making. What they're saying, because what they're really saying is this. Is this really the best way to invest these resources? I mean, like, you're the, do you know how much this stuff costs? You're talking about a year's worth of wages that was per, perfume was purchased, and we're just, like, going to give somebody a scalp massage. That feels like maybe, could we maybe invest that into the ceiling in the kid's building. Like, I'm just spitballing here, but just a few other needs that come to mind, right? Like, I just don't know, that just doesn't, I don't know if that's wise, right? And, and that's a logical argument. Like, when I think about that, I'm like, I, yeah, I get it, right? If you believe in, in the idea of stewardship, that every good thing you have in your life comes from God, and you are responsible to manage it appropriately, that's a part of your brain should kind of go to that place. But they, they begin to get like frustrated about this. They feel like it's, it's, a, it's a waste. And all of the disciples are in agreement. It's not like there's a couple greedy disciples who are like, what a waste. And then the other ones are like, I don't know. He's super into money. You know what I mean? Like it's all of the disciples. They're all frustrated. They all think that this was not smart. They're all worked up about it. You know who's not worked up? Jesus which is annoying, right? Super frustrating. And, and his calm further fuels their frustration because that's the way it works. I mean, that, this is how it works in your life, right? You ever get so worked up about something because it's so obvious, like it's, it's clearly wrong and you assume that whoever's with you is on your side. Like this is the only way a normal human could react under this circumstance, but presented with this information, they would be upset, like I am right now. It's an outrage. And you look over at them, and they're like, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, I, there's other perspectives, and I think that, like, you, like, if you could just pull out a little bit, and, like, we don't know what Becky's going through at home, you know? And you're like, what? I thought I knew you. This is me and you against Becky. Don't you see that? Who cares about Becky? Sorry if your name's Becky, by the way. But you know what you did. So, to be real. So, these guys are frustrated, and Jesus is calm, and they're like, why are we worked up? Why are you not worked up? That's what's frustrating us. We hate that. We hate when someone else has the ability to be calm, and we don't know how. And the disciples are, like, extremely anxious that Jesus isn't. Why is that? Well, let's start with the disciples. Essentially, from their point of view, there is a long list of stuff that we should be doing, right? And who's going to pay for it? And we finally got a donor in here that's got some resources. And is this really what we want to be doing? I mean, like, Jesus, you've made so many promises to people. You have this big vision of all the stuff that you want to do and accomplish. So why are we in here lounging about, eating with ex-lepers? Sorry to bring it up, Simon, but, like, you know how it was. You know what I mean? Like, you're, get, you're in here, and there's, like, perfumes, and, like, we're just eating and talking and laughing. And it just feels like there's so much injustice, and there's so many things that need to happen and need to get done I mean, are you even familiar with the to-do list, Jesus? Okay, let me just read it to you. 1A, solve world hunger. 
One B, save world from sin. These are big items, Jesus. And like, you're just hanging out. Like, I feel like you could be so much more effective if you didn't waste all this time just hanging out with people. I mean, that's really, that's a massive drain. And if I were making your schedule, I wouldn't do it like this. I wouldn't do it this way. How are we going to bring peace on earth if you never get worked up about any issues? If you never get frustrated? Like, if there's no fight in you, like, how are we going to, like, I just, sometimes, Jesus, I wonder if you even understand what's going on here, okay? You ever had this kind of weird conversation with God before? I'm glad you're able to relax, God, because I can't. My brain's going a million miles an hour. There's so much we should be doing, so many circumstances to worry about, so many unresolved issues. Not obsessing about them feels irresponsible. Honestly, it feels unspiritual. And think about this. I mean, Jesus was only on earth doing ministry for three years of time. That's crazy. I mean, it's such a small window. And for such a small window, he sure spent a lot of time just going to weddings, eating and drinking with people, taking walks, you know, like strolling through gardens, taking 40-day solitude retreats, multiples. I mean, like several of them during that time, visiting friends. I mean, he had a mission, right? Like, there, there was injustice, there was stuff that needed to be, like, where's the urgency? What is going on here? And I would say if there was one kind of lone attribute that stood out about Jesus, it was his complete lack of anxiety. And it drove his followers crazy that he could be so calm. It comes up again and again and again in the Gospels that they're annoyed that he is calm. And part of it is that here's a, there's an assumption that most of us jump to um, when someone is being calm in the midst of chaos. We jump to the, the, uh, the conclusion that I know why you're calm. It's because you don't care. If you cared, you'd be crazy like me. <laughs> like, you, you clearly don't care about what's going on here. That's why you're so chill, Right? But, but that's actually a falsity of logic, right? Being calm doesn't mean you don't care. So what does being calm mean? Let me give you a definition of what calm means from a biblical perspective. And Jesus personified this, right? Calm is a refusal to allow emotional impulses to override your ability to reach perspective, remain present, and react with patience. This is calm. So what, it, what does that even mean? Reach perspective. This is where you pull back, right? Mo- most of the horrible decisions that we make are because we have no perspective. It's all emotion, right? And there's no logistics involved, right? All we're seeing, we've got the blinders on. We just, we're so zoomed in so close. But to be able to push back and put the whole thing in context in the story of your life, in the story of God's plan, in the story of the bigger thing that's happening, suddenly allows us to achieve perspective. Achieving perspective is is the idea of it takes time. Your first glance is usually not correct because you don't have enough information, right? Um, Most of us, we, we like to react quickly and then we think slowly. And then later we end up being like, uh... Sorry about that. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and then your wife is like, you weren't thinking, right? 
you know, you're like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, I got, that was, it was weird. It was weird for all of us, okay? It's like, don't bring us into this, this is your issue. So, like, remaining present, right? This is the idea, you have all the disciples in this story who, in their minds, they're thinking about what's going to happen next, and how are we going to do, and what about tomorrow, and when is this going to go down, and how are we going to pay for, and how about this, or whatever. They're thinking towards the future, and because their mind is in the future, and their body is in the, in the present, they're neither location. Because you can't take your body into the future, and if your body is in the present, but your mind is separate from it, you're not really experiencing all that God is trying to get your attention about right here and now. They're thinking about, what about this? What about that? What all could the money be spent for? And Jesus is like, I don't, I'm not even thinking about that. That's important. That's significant. But it's not the most important thing right now. The most important thing right now is this dinner, this meal, savoring these flavors, like experiencing these people, understanding the passion of this woman. I want to be all here. And then, and then when the next moment comes, I want to be all there. And then to react with patience. This is where um, we don't snap into a decision. Like most of us, we wait till we're pushed to the limit and then we snap, right? That is the, the oldest parent trick in the book, right? Um, but to react with patience is to simply like, you know what? It's to ask this question of like, do I even have all of the information to react appropriately right now? Usually the answer to that is no. No, I don't. Because I have not talked to Becky, okay? <laughs> I've just made a bunch of assumptions about her from her Instagram page. And I think we all see what's going on. So Jesus, he's in this moment. He, he, he sees what's going on, and he stays calm. It says this in, in verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, right, having great perspective, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Right? This is like Jesus is getting a little bit cryptic here. He's talking about prophecy and he's trying to say like, you know, I'm going to die soon. I'm, I'm not going to be here. Um, you're always going to have work to do. You're going to have ministry that needs to happen. You're going to have work that you need to dedicate yourself to in the world. And it's important and it's significant. But right now it needs to just be about us. Right. One, one of my mentors said something incredible to me that's always hung with me. When I first became a pastor, he said every single day as a pastor, um, you will leave the office with good ministry gone undone. You cannot do it all. But you have limited time with your family, with your kids. And Jesus is trying to wake up his disciples to this fact. He says that she's poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial, which, of course, they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. They didn't understand what he's saying at the time. I tell you the truth. Whenever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed, which is, again, one of the most frustrating things you could ever say to someone who is a perfectionist and thinks everything should be done this specific way, to then have God come in and be like, actually, that's not the right way. This is the right way. And we're going to tell that story forever. <laughs> right? Just the grace of God. You know what I mean? It's just beautiful. <clears throat> and then we jump from this story into another two-sentence story. Now, 
I want to read you what comes right after this, because I think a lot of times these two things that I'm, I'm going to read you are read in isolation. And yet when the Bible was written, um, when, when these Gospels were written, there weren't these kind of title breaks that we put in there for our modern convenience. But these stories kind of ran together. And there's an intentionality with which the authors put one thing next to another thing. And it's supposed to wake us up and pay attention to, like, wait, what's going on here? And so I want to read you the next two verses. After this dinner party, the, the very next thing that happens is this. Verse 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, How much money will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. What's happening? You have, you have uh, one passage that is about a bunch of people feeling very, very anxious about a situation they can't control and all of these things that are left undone and how the money is running out and how they don't think that Jesus is doing it right. And then the very next thing is a story about one of those anxious disciples going out and finding a way to get the money and finding a way to get people to push Jesus' buttons so that he will rise up and be the militant leader they think he should be. See, a lot of scholars don't believe that Judas was actually uh, trying to get Jesus killed because he was a zealot. He was a political uh, revolutionary. The, the actual thought process a lot of people think Judas had was, I know you're not going to do what I know you need to do, so I'm going to trap you in a situation where you have to do what I know you need to do. Because I know what's gonna happen. I get those people to show up and then you'll rise up and be like, okay, enough is enough. And you'll take the power back and we'll overthrow the government and everything is gonna go the way that I think it should be in my mind. And yet that did not happen. There's a word for this exchange. It's called manipulation. Manipulation says, if you're not gonna do what I believe you should do, I'll trap you so that you have to. And that's the situation that's unfolding here. I think Dr. Harriet Lerner would call it overfunctioning, Taking control over something that is not yours to control. And this is a big part of where anxiety comes from, this belief that things need to happen a certain way. And we don't know how to navigate it. And so anxiety fills that gap. And the manipulation tells us that we can maneuver the situation in order to relieve our own anxiety. Let me give you a, um, a, an equation that shows you a little bit how anxiety actually works. And you can just kind of scribble this down. Anxiety begins with an ideal, right? An ideal is like, kind of like, this is the perfect way I think things should happen. This is the way things should go down, right? And we, we pull ideals from all sorts of places. Pinterest, right? Um, Instagram, romantic comedies, right? Um, the abs of the guy next door, right? Like all sorts of places we pull ideals. And then what happens is we take an ideal, and when we connect an ide a generic ideal with a specific person or situation, it becomes an expectation, right? I have an idea of what the perfect husband would be like. And then I married this man. So he has to become the ideal. Now the expectation is on him. 
And oftentimes, we can't always deliver on people's expectations of us, partially because maybe we're not capable, they're not realistic, or we don't even know what they are, right? And when someone fails to meet our expectation, what does that produce? Frustration. We're frustrated that they're not doing what clearly should happen. Then that quickly turns the corner and turns into judgment of like, man, you could be better. You could do better if you tried, if you cared about it, if you really loved me, right? Then that turns into anger most times. This is really where it kind of splits off. For some of us, it produces anger. For others of us, it produces depression. Like, how dare you? And anger and depression turn into manipulation. If we're depressed, we play the victim card. We want everyone to feel sorry for us. We want to be picked up. We want them to take over. If we're angry, we want to move things around to where they have to do the thing that we know that they should do. And here's where things go sideways. Most of the time, manipulation does not produce what we want, which is connection. It produces separation. And you know this about your own life. You hate feeling like someone is manipulating you. And the first human reaction to manipulation is separation. I don't want to be a part of that. Don't try and control me. Don't try and make me do that. That doesn't feel like love to me. And oftentimes separation produces death. And in this story, we begin with a disciple of Jesus who has an idea of how things should go that creates an expectation that produces frustration when Jesus thinks differently than he does. And then he begins to judge the way God does things, which turns into anger, which turns into, I know what I'll do, I'll make you do it. And we go from, I'm a little bit frustrated at a party to Judas making a noose in an empty field and realizing that he had lost everything that he cared about in life because of his unchecked anxiety. You see, this is the actual lie of anxiety. It says to us, I, I can't be at peace unless I get what I want. I can't be at peace unless I get what I want. And so I'll do whatever I have to do to get what I want because that's where peace comes from. And yet, you know what? There's a beautiful scripture in the book of Philippians in which one of the very first pastors is speaking to his congregation and he's echoing the thoughts and practices of Jesus. And this is what he says. And I want you to hear this. Philippians 4, chapter 6 and 7. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And that's a beautiful verse. Let me tell you the part I don't like, just personally. It doesn't say anything about the situation resolving itself. Have you noticed that? It doesn't say, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and he will give it to you right away. The way you want it, exactly how you want it. Everything will go according to plan and none of your fears will ever be realized. No, it doesn't say that. 
it, what it tells us is that the more you pray, the more you experience a supernatural sort of peace. Peace that extends beyond human understanding. A lot of translation says peace that, that transcends human understanding. You know the kind of peace that human understanding gets? The kind of peace that comes when I get what I want. But God wants to give you a calm in the midst of the chaos. And here's the uncomfortable thing that we don't often like about God. God is not interested in giving you everything you want. He's interested in giving you peace when you don't get what you want, when things don't go your way, when things don't happen the way you dreamed, when your ideal is left on the table. Jesus wants to enter into your life and give you a sense of transcendent peace that says, even when I don't get what I want, God gives me everything that I need and I am calm, I'm fine. You know what has never turned anybody onto Christianity? Somebody going up to someone and being like, you're a Christian, right? Man, you just seem so worked up and frustrated and just your life seems so chaotic. You seem like you hate your life and your marriage and like you're always worried about everything. What is your secret? I, man, I wanna incorporate that into my routines, right? No, it's the opposite. Is this moment in which you are experiencing chaos and immediately your attention settles in on the one who is calm. And in your mind you think, how can you be calm? You must not care. Oh no, I care. How come you're not crazy like me? Because Jesus is calling the shots in my life. Because God has given me a sense of calm. Because the thing that I'm experiencing transcends human understanding. This is what God wants to gift you with. Wouldn't it be great if like the Apostle Paul says, you don't need any sort of circumstances in order to experience contentment. Because whatever comes at you, you understand that when you are not in control, you are connected to the God who is in control and you are going to be fine. See, this is part of the gift of prayer. It is not about me attempting to change God's mind. It is about allowing him to calm mine. I'm telling you, when you begin to practice this in your life, these moments when things feel chaotic and out of control, to simply say, God, God, Help me to be still, to gain perspective, to react with patience. God, place peace at the center of my story. And God, help me not to make all these excuses about, I can't do this because I'm worried about that. God, help me to be present and accountable in this moment with these people and see what you are allowing to unfold in my midst. And God, may that prepare me for what's next. Can I pray for you this morning? I'm going to do it anyway, so you might as well just uh, embrace that. If you bow your heads with me. Father, I am.